Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing, common-sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I'm Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee's Law School. The topic of today's episode is judicial accountability, and we will be discussing the role of the judiciary and judicial accountability with my colleague, Brandon Hasbrook, and Aliza Schatzman. I'll let them each introduce themselves. First, Brandon. Thanks so much for the invite, Carlos. Um, A little bit about me. So I'm a newly minted associate professor of law at Washington and Lee School of Law. I write uh, on subjects such as abolition, movement law, uh, courts, constitutional structure and understandings. Uh, My work's been published in many leading journals and popular press. It's good stuff. You all should read it. He has an SSRN page and he also you can find him on our school website as well with all his publications. All right, next, Aliza. Hi, I'm Aliza Schatzman. I'm the president and co-founder of the Legal Accountability Project. We are a new nonprofit seeking to ensure that as many law clerks as possible have a positive clerkship experience while extending support and resources to those who do not. I graduated from Williams College and Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. After law school, I clerked in D.C. Superior Court during the 2019 to 2020 term, intending to launch my career as a prosecutor. In March of 2022, I submitted a statement for the record for a House Judiciary hearing detailing my personal experience of harassment and retaliation by a former D.C. Superior Court judge. And since then, I've been writing and speaking widely on the subject of judicial accountability and protecting law clerks from harassment. Now, the topic of the day is judicial accountability, and I think it helps for the lay people to get a lay of the land. Now, Brandon, I'll start with you to kind of explain things. Most people have no idea how the judiciary is set up, and we all go to work every day and have like HR and bosses and, you know, things that hold us accountable. So the idea that federal judges don't really have oversight is probably shocking to people. So could you just explain the current regulations governing federal judges? Sure. So the theme and the takeaway today, at least from my perspective, right, is that the judiciary historically and in its current form is anti-democratic. So, and its power is extraordinary, which we'll get into in a little bit later in the show. But now let me explain the federal judiciary's anti-democratic structure, okay? Federal judges are appointed for lifetime terms. There is no term limit. The only way judges can be removed is through impeachment by the House of Representatives and conviction by the Senate. This has really ever happened and will, let's be honest, never happen with today's Congress, <coughs> Clarence Thomas, okay? <laughs> All right. So federal courts enjoy the sole power to interpret the law, determine the constitutionality of the law, and apply it to individual cases. Now, the truth is Congress has a lot of power there, but it's abdicated. So Courts have this awesome power, and of course, with that power, Congress would create guardrails to ensure that the courts comply with federal civil rights laws and have a code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Nope, 
no accountability at all. As a result, federal judges have sexually harassed law clerks, engaged in discriminatory hiring, and perpetuated racist and sexist hierarchies, including progressive icons, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice William Brennan. And Justice Ginsburg, she only hired one black federal clerk. Justice Brennan, who's an icon to Brennan Center at NYU, he refused to hire a woman clerk. So much so that a former clerk literally threatened to sue him if he did not hire a woman clerk. And then he hired a woman clerk, like, you know, 15 years in his tenure. OK, um, so like, what does this mean? And, and I say this, right, like, think about this for a moment. Imagine, you know, despite what good many would argue that Justice Brennan and Justice Ginsburg have done. Imagine what the law would look like if it was written by someone who actually believed in Justice Brennan's case, that women were equal and that black people in Justice Ginsburg's case were worthy and the intellectual giants that we are. Now, the lower federal courts, and let me define that, I'm talking about federal appellate and district courts specifically. They have a judicial code of ethics, which is essentially a set of canons concerning recusals and participation in political activities. <coughs> Clarence Thomas. Um, there are also regulations on lower federal courts concerning limitations on amount of outside earned income. There's also uh, uh, laws in place dealing with uh, essentially reporting um, if you have more than $1,000 in stocks and securities. And there's financial kind of disclosure obligations, right? To be clear, none of this applies to the Supreme Court of the United States. Consequently, you have justices getting millions of dollars in advance on a, a book contract. You have justices ruling on cases that there is a direct complex. You know, like when your partner is advocating for insurrection and you rule on whether the House of Representatives can get access to documents that show that your wife was instrumental in attempting to overthrow the democracy. And when justices participate in Federalist Society and related conservative organization events, complaining about CRT and, uh, you know, and being persecute, persecuted as conservative minorities. So in my work, I argue that we all need to pay attention and prioritize the courts. That is, judges matter. In our current system of congressional inaction, where votes are suppressed, where women's rights are under attack, but police continue to kill black and brown people, but LGBTQ persons are being dehumanized, where the Second Amendment is more important than our children and grandmothers, where our environment is in crisis and the list goes on, our focus has to be the courts. Conservatives have centered the courts since the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, okay? Right, it's been a reactionary project Right. And essentially what you see now is that conservatives understand that the power and the vision of our country comes down to five votes. Now, you know, Brandon's comments are interesting. And thank you so much for that full and thorough you know, explanation of the court system, because, um, you know, as everyday people who go to work every day, I'm sure most people are shocked by it. But I think what is equally shocking and I'm going to have Aliza address this question um, is what judicial clerkships are and how they work. And so, Elise, I'd love for you to explain what are judicial clerkships? How do people get them? How do they work? And like, why do we even care about being judicial clerks? Like, why is it a big deal for a lawyer to be a judicial clerk? 
Yeah. So law clerks are typically fresh out of law school, although more and more judges are looking for clerks with work experience, but they're young attorneys and they spend a year or two working and learning from a federal or a state judge. And while their day-to-day tasks kind of vary from chambers to chambers, most do research, they write opinions and orders, they go to court with the judge and they prep him or her, they take notes, um, they assist with judicial decision-making. And for the clerks, it's a crash course in trial lawyering. You learn the good, the bad, and the ugly from the attorneys who appear before the court. Um, The legal community really puts a premium on judicial clerkships. If you go into private practice afterward, you will get a salary bump. If you are going into public interest law, if you want to be a prosecutor, a PD, a nonprofit trial attorney, you that's pretty much a checkbox you need to complete before you can get that next job. So the legal community really puts a premium on clerkships, period, and they really don't do a good job of prioritizing a positive clerkship experience um, over just getting a prestigious one. And so in the best of circumstances, a judicial clerkship, you can develop a lifelong mentor-mentee relationship with a judge where they'll help you secure your next job and be a lifelong resource. In the worst of circumstances, it can be a particularly hostile work environment, one that's particularly conducive to harassment, and it can set the groundwork for a long-term retaliatory negative relationship that really drives clerks from the profession particularly clerks who, like I said, are interested in careers in public interests. We are enabling life tenure judges to just drive minorities and women aspiring public servants from the legal profession. And that's what I spend a lot of time talking about these days. Now, I have friends who've had both positive and negative clerkship experiences. And, you know, we hear these secret stories. Um, You know, I have a friend who clerked at the Ninth Circuit. And when the stuff about Kaczynski came out, um, and she clerked for the, in the Ninth Circuit in like the 90s. And she's like, oh, well, you know, I was warned never to go to his office by myself, by his judge, by her judge. Um, or, you know, the one time I had a meeting with him, he sat on the desk, spread eagle, like at eye level with two female clerks in the office. And it's like, oh, he just is that way. Um, and, you know, very reputable, well-known judges get away with things like that um, over and over again. So, you know, I'd love to follow up with you and ask, you know, why is it that we let judges have this kind of power and we look the other way? Um, you know, how do judges have so much power over law students, practitioners, and even professors? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a larger cultural issue in the legal community of deifying judges and disbelieving law clerks. Judges have enormous unchecked power over their former clerks' lives, careers, and reputations. And a judge's reference, positive or negative, is going to make or break a law clerk's career. So that really encourages a culture of silence. It is enormously difficult for law clerks to speak out and speak up, even in the face of outrageous mistreatment. And I mean, the issue with folks like Kaczynski is people talk about 2017 as the year. I I speak with a lot of law schools these days. Um, And they say 2017 is when the Kaczynski thing happened and we decided to make changes. Well, no, it didn't happen in 2017. This type of outrageous misconduct has been occurring for decades. We just learned about it in 2017. Think of all the folks we allowed to be driven from the legal community or harassed and mistreated. Their careers and lives were totally altered while we just continued along with this terrible culture of silence. I mean, When I think of the folks who tried to dissuade me from speaking publicly, 
from filing a complaint against a judge who harassed and retaliated against me. It's a lot of women, like female attorneys, people who should have been in solidarity with me. So it's really a legal community wide problem. And while there are some laws in the books that'll help, there's proposed legislation that'll help. It's wider cultural change. And it's really about believing and affirming clerks and encouraging everybody to bring their full selves to work every day. Because like nobody, regardless of your personality, your identity, deserves to be harassed in the workplace. So, And it's also a bipartisan issue. Like both Democratic and Republican judicial appointees harass their clerks and both progressive and conservative clerks face mistreatment, retaliation by the most powerful members of the profession. And as we're going to talk about right now, there are not only no workplace protections, but there's no way to seek recourse if you need assistance. Now, what I think is interesting about this is, um, you know, as you were speaking, I, I think about the grooming that happens in law schools and in the legal profession. Um, and in many ways, I feel like it starts with day one of orientation. And it starts with, you know, being accepted to accept the Socratic method and being insulted in class and harassed and bullied in class by your professor. Um, when women's law organizations hold events, you know, I remember women saying who would come to my campus and say, oh, I have three nannies because I obviously work around the clock. Or, of course, your boss is going to harass you at work, but you get to work in big law or you get to work for a clerk. So or get to be a judicial clerk. So you should just, you know, get this is what it is like you're choosing to be in this male domain. And so as a woman choosing to be in this male domain, harassment's going to happen you don't get to have, to, you don't get to have work-life balance. Like you chose this profession and you're giving it up. Um, so Brandon, you know, you work a lot with our students at WNL on applying for clerkships and uh, getting their resumes together and things like that. And you write a lot of recommendations and refer people to a, to a lot of judges. So is, is there anything out there for you as a professor who's writing these letters to know, you know, which judges are problematic beyond gossip? Yeah. So, a, a few thoughts on that. And the first uh, comment is, it gets back to your previous question, Carlos, that is professors are engaged essentially in, in perpetuating this hierarchy, right? And, um, and we do that because we want to look cool for credibility for our school, right? We want to place these students with big time judges and we get that shine, right? Knowing essentially that they're walking in a lion's den, right? That their identity is literally going to be under assault. Who they are as a person is going to be under assault, not only in the day-to-day -day interaction with their judges, right? But also through their opinion writing, right? Like just imagine for a moment that if you are you know, you have some sort of values, this idea that, I don't know, you know, women are people and women should have all rights. And then you're going to clerk for a justice that, I don't know, says, well, no, you're not because, you know, you know, before the, the constitution uh, was written, um, you didn't have any of these rights. So sorry, you don't have any of these rights, right? Like, just imagine kind of that massive assault. So like, I, I, and professors still send these, these students to these justices to get that shine. Now, in terms of my role in helping students, you know, navigate the clerkship process and directly to the federal clerkship process, I am a huge fan of federal clerkships for many good reasons. One, I think with the right judge, you get a fantastic experience, right? It's essentially one year of clerking could be the equivalent, in my opinion, two to three years of working at a firm. There's something else that I tell students and I remind them, 
this is still one year of your life or two, depending on the clerkship, the clerkship term, right? Like you got to be in a room and these chambers are not that big with a person for a year of your life. So in the interviewing process, like you have an obligation to yourself to ask hard questions to see if this is an environment for you. Now, if there's any information that I have at all that a judge is problematic, the truth is I will not direct the student to apply to these judges and I will give them full disclosure of any information, gossip or not, that I have and say we need to be aware of these things. Now, a lot of it is gossip because it is culture of silence that we've created. And, 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 and you know, we do this as professors and that we got to dismantle the system completely. We got to rethink and reimagine what law schools are, how we prioritize what jobs are good or what jobs aren't good, how we prioritize the benefit of certain jobs over the benefit of others. Like that's garbage. We got to stop doing that, right? So students don't feel pressure to get into these clerkships where they can potentially be in a relationship with a judge that is literally, you know, their identities under assault, physical identity, all identity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, what I think about is um, even when we're sending students to law firms, it's like, you know, this law firm is known for X and we send students anyway. But I think about the counterpoint of, you know, students take out hundreds of thousands of debt to go to law school. And I have had so many students apply to law firms or apply to judges who I say, I don't think that's a good judge for you simply because it is prestigious and they need the money, and they need the opportunity, and they need the resume line item. Um, and, and it is our fault that they need that specific line item. It's the priority that we put on those experiences. That's right. Eliza, did you want to follow up? Um, I mean, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I think that the law schools have a big role to play in this. They are a big part of the problem. They can be a big part of the solution. It really, it's so problematic. I mean, a lot of legal jobs are based on whisper networks, but especially the clerkship process. And this is super timely right now. Law clerks are going through the Oscar hiring plan right now. And it's this crazy system where they apply on a Monday and by Tuesday, the judge is going through a hundred or hundreds of applications and extending offers. Like it's an insane system. And we really depend on current clerks speaking with prospective clerks and sharing the information they have. And one of the things I'm trying to do through my nonprofit is to like dismantle these crazy silo effects whereby some law schools have information about misbehaving judges, but they either warn their own students and that does nothing for the prospective clerk down the road who's going to walk into a hostile work environment. Or we have the outrageous cases. I've talked to some clerkships directors who say, I know about misbehaving judges. I don't warn my students. That is insane. I mean, some of these schools are really just literally prioritizing the prestige of the clerkship over all else. And that should be called out. I mean, there, there is no reason, even if you are hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, to subject yourself to that. Because if you are ultimately driven from the legal profession or you get a judge who gives you a retaliatory negative reference, I mean, you're going to be driven from the profession anyway. So you need to think a little bit longer term than just the fancy, shiny clerkship in front of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's it's very easy to get tunnel vision in law school. And, you know, we as law professors and law school administrators are so driven by uh, U.S. News and rankings that it's like, well, if we stop sending judges to X, students to X clerk and X circuit, we're not going to have as many federal clerkships as the school down the road. 
And what does that do to our ranking? What does that do to our money? And what does that do to all these things? Um, And so students just aren't the priority. Um, And I think often in law schools, students aren't (laughs) the priority in a lot of circumstances. Definitely. And what I see as, I mean, former clerks, current clerks reach out to me every day to tell me what's happened to them. And what I see is there's this troubling overlap between the schools that tell me I'm doing an excellent job. I don't need to make any changes. And those are the law clerk alumni who are reaching out to me and saying, I was mistreated in my clerkship. My law school did nothing. My law school does not do a good job of warning students. So I think there's like a data mismatch here between what the law schools think they're doing and what the students and the former clerks like actually need. Absolutely. They should be spending more time engaging with their students and finding out what clerkship resources do you need. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about more details on the current landscape of judicial regulation and what people have in mind for the future. So Elisa, I would love it if you could tell us about what the Judicial Accountability Act is and what the purpose and the scope of that act would be. Yeah, so the Judiciary Accountability Act, or the JAA, that's H.R. 4827 in the House and S. 2553 in the Senate, that bill would extend Title VII protections to federal judiciary employees, including law clerks and public defenders, enabling them to sue their harassers and seek damages for harm done to their careers, reputations, and future earning potential. And this bill would bring the federal judiciary in line with the other two branches of the federal government. As of 1995, both Congress and the executive branch are covered under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It's literally just the judiciary, the folks who enforce the anti-discrimination laws who are not themselves subject to them. So the JA, the first thing it would do is extend those Title VII protections, which are crucial. Um, I mean, they're crucial, but it would do important other things as well. It would create some real judicial accountability. First of all, it would amend Title 28 of the U.S. Code to redefine judicial misconduct to include discrimination and retaliation. It would also specify that if a judge retires, resigns, or dies, the investigation into their misconduct won't cease. Uh, It would standardize employee dispute resolution or EDR plans, and it would create a confidential reporting system so clerks could go somewhere and report if they're not ready to file a formal complaint. And the third thing it would do that I think doesn't get enough attention is it would impose some data collection requirements on the federal judiciary. It would require them to conduct annual workplace culture assessments, which they are just notoriously unwilling to do, which is a red flag to me. Um, It would also require them to collect and report data on judicial misconduct complaints under the JCND Act. Um, And it would also impose some data collection requirements on the lack of diversity in clerkship hiring and federal public defender hiring. And it would create some overarching commissions to oversee the implementation of these programs because right now what we have is self-policing, which really leads to no internal policing because the judiciary is just notoriously unwilling to self-regulate and discipline its own. So it's really important legislation. It's not getting enough attention, but I'll be out there talking about it every day until it does. Now, what fascinates me is three points in time, right? So everywhere else that people have worked other than the federal government since 1964 has been subject to Title VII. Congress doesn't get around to making themselves subject to Title VII until 1995, so 30 years later. And now almost another 30 years later, we're just talking about it for the judiciary, right? We have large points in time, basically like, you know, my mom was born in 1954. So 10 years after my mom was born, we had a statute on the books 
to protect her in the workplace. And now her grandchildren would not be protected if they worked in a court. Now, Brandon, I would love for you. Um, I, I just love your opinion on all this, actually. <laughs> I'd love for you to weigh in on the judicial account. Sure. So, yeah, please. Uh, and I have a lot of thoughts. But first, I think it's important to, to discuss the lay of the land now. So we have proposed acts, which I'll comment on in a minute. But as of today, right, like there's really only two options, to my understanding, is if a person experienced kind of discrimination or mistreatment. And first is employment dispute resolution complaint. Okay, So essentially what this is, an internal courthouse dispute resolution process, which can reassign the clerk to a different judge. Completely judge friendly, difficult to navigate and offers extremely limited remedies. OK, that's one option. OK. Second option is you can file a formal complaint under judicial conduct and disability. Okay, this allows any person to file a complaint alleging a federal judge is engaged in conduct prejudicial to the effective and expeditious administration of the business of the courts, or has become by reason of mental or physical disability unable to discharge all their duties. Okay, not really centered around workplace harassment. And law clerks really uh, file complaints against judges. Why, as mentioned, retaliation, reputational harm. Okay, that's what we have now. That's it. Okay, period. The end. That's all you got. All right. So you're like, all right. Well, what's out there? What you know? What can we do? Absolutely right. There's this uh, pending act, judicial accountability act. We've already discussed what it potentially could do, especially kind of with Title Seven. Fantastic. You have the 21st Century Courts Act introduced in the House in April of this year, and that was essentially develop a code of ethics for the judges. You know, <laughs> Justice Clarence Thomas. Okay, so that's <laughs> that. All right. So now, like, what are my comments about? Well, you, you know, let me foreground my comments, which is this. We literally all sat through a confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh. And we sat through a confirmation hearing, many of us, maybe not some of our listeners, of Justice Clarence Thomas in the 1990s. Okay? There was credible allegations in both cases. Credible. And specifically, I'm going to speak to Kavanaugh now because I've been dunking on Thomas so far. Kavanaugh, there was credible allegations of sexual assault. Credible. Okay? Credible. And yet nothing was done. Indeed, he got promoted. Okay? So you're like, well, Brandon, even if the Judicial Accountability Act, Judicial Accountability Act, and the 21st Century Act passed, would that be a win? Sure, it will be a win. But, like, what are the consequences? Right? And, and it's not, you know, and I have my doubts that these will even get passed personally in this Congress. But what are the consequences? So, like, yes, it passed. I think it's a great start. I think it's more of a floor, as at what, whereas what I argue for movement judges, which is a specific type of judges that I think um, will just striving for the ceiling. And that are judges essentially that are judicial solidarity with certain movements. For an example, equality movements, right? Here's a uh, one classic example, Emmett Sullivan, who I clerk for, he's a federal district court in the District of Columbia, okay? He raised hell, I mean, hell, when his woman clerks who were mothers had to literally go um, pump in bathrooms because they had nowhere to pump. Nowhere. So he raised hell. So what happened? He literally had his chambers essentially redesigned, okay, so that women could pump in their actual office. If they, you know, they had all the privacy they needed. 
That is judicial solidarity. Like, and so it matters what type of judges are there in terms of your culture that you want to create, okay? Like, you could have all the acts in the world, but yeah, if we don't have a Congress actually enforce these acts, right, and impeach these people, if we don't have judges actually leading by example like Emmett Sullivan did, then what, all right? So, like, sure, I think these are great acts. That's a great start. Fine, okay? But actual transformation is something I think we need to start thinking about, right? Is like, How do we get there faster? One thing that we need to start thinking about is court expansion, which I've argued about and I think we need to we need to do. OK, the other thing is, you know, Congress could play a huge role like judicial supremacy. No one said that the courts need to have the last world. Congress could. All right. I think that's important. Um, and then there's a lot of other good things like in terms of recusals, which the justices don't have laws that we should be putting on the books. We should all be monitoring. I love the group. That Elisa uh, Eliza is doing right now with kind of this watch group with what the hell is happening and uh, with clerks and judges. That's important, and and more importantly, like that's important for accountability purposes. And I think we need that. All right, now Brandon, you briefly mentioned your work on movement judges, and you've written extensively about the role of judges and prosecutors in their sentencing and other decisions. Could you just tell us what the problems are you've identified in your scholarship and what your proposals have been? Sure, so, all right, let me, let me, let me back up to why movement judges were, you know, why did I create this piece? And I think, look at the Trump presidency, for an example. 27% of the current district court judges, okay, was appointed by Donald Trump, okay? 30% of the federal appellate judges were appointed by Donald Trump. Three, a third of our Supreme Court was appointed by Donald Trump. Now, let's give you an example of what Donald Trump's uh, judges look like. 84% of them were white, okay? White judges. That's not, you know, uh, representative of the diversity of this country. He didn't appoint a single black jurist as a federal appellate judge, not one, okay? And he actively sought certain types of jurors, him and uh, Mitch McConnell, okay? And what type of jurors are they? Well, they are anti-black jurors. Literally had judges in their confirmation hearing refusing to say Brown versus Board of Education was rightly decided. I mean, refusing, no. Like, uh, there may be another case that comes about, so I can't say that, okay? Literally saying this and getting away with it in their confirmation hearing, okay? So you have anti-black. You have anti-abortion judges. That's all they worked and done. This was their life's work, right? You have anti-LGBTQ people. So when you have these types of judges that have been confirmed, what the hell do you think is going to happen when they're rendering decisions? Well, they're going to magically change? No, the decisions are just that. Anti-Black, anti-LGBTQ. They're going to be anti-abortion, right? You're going to have these kind of decisions come out, and they already have been coming out. So that's the lay of the land. So now my piece, and it tracks the conservative legal reaction, reactionary uh, um, project and the Federalist Society, and I do all that in this piece. And then I make the case that the left needs to come up with a vision of what our country should be and how the courts play a role. And in my view, we need to start uh, selecting and confirming uh, movement judges. Now, movement judge is a jurist who understands that our constitution contains democracy affirming tools we need to dismantle systems of oppressions, white supremacy, patriarchy, um, and achieve true equality for all people. 
That is what a movement judge is. And I give examples of movement judges and how uh, essentially movement judges are working in solidarity with movements, okay, with liberationist movements. And one example that I want to cover just really quickly because I think it's on everyone's mind um, that I give is Judge Carlton Reeves. You met him, Carlos. He's been to our school. The guy's as cool as they get. He's a good person. And he uh, wrote the district court opinion in Dobbs. Okay? Not many people know this. All right? And let me tell you a little bit about Dobbs. He holds that Mississippi's anti-abortion law unequivocally violates the 14th Amendment. But his opinion does more, and our listeners really should read it. In this, he asked the state of Mississippi, why are we here? Literally, that's his question he asked to the state of Mississippi, okay? He then posits, quote, the only other explanation in the brief of the state is making a deliberate effort to overturn Roe and establish constitutional precedent. With the recent changes in the membership of the Supreme Court, it may be that the state believes divine providence covered the Capitol when it passed this legislation. Time will tell. He then concludes on this. And this is what judicial solidarity and movements are, because Carlton Reed's a black man. He's not a woman. Okay, And he says this, quote, the fact that men, myself included, are determining how women may choose to manage their reproductive health is a sad irony not lost on the court, unquote. Judicial solidarity. So we're talking about judges and hiring and ethics and stuff, but we also are talking about substantive law and how it's being developed, right? And how the Supreme Court is literally taking rights away from people, and they will be this summer, right? And we have to imagine a judiciary that's a bit different and how judges could play a role and actually, wait a minute, like, what about, here's a radical idea, what, what if the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment actually promises abolition to dismantle systems of oppression? which I argue they do in much in many of my works. The Just Prosecutor, you noted. The Anti-Racist Constitution, I publish it you. I give this beautiful landscape what the Constitution can be in terms of abolitionist frameworks. We should be appointing judges, Carlos, right? By we meaning the left. And we need to create a structure that cares about the court so we can support these people, that we could get on the channels and pay money to get these people uh, essentially confirmed. But we need judges to say proudly during the confirmation here when they're asked, they all are asked, well, what kind of judge are you? The right people always say, I'm an originalist. And what you, me, and everyone else, black women, LGBTQ people say, uh-oh, because originalism has a black problem. It has an LGBTQ plus problem. It has a brown problem, a poor problem. It has all of these agenda problems. It has all of these problems. I need a judge to say, I'm an abolitionist. And we all follow suit and support that person. That's what these pieces are about. I provide the vision. We really need the infrastructure in place to do this. And more importantly, we need our elected leaders to back these people, not run away from these judges with different views. Now, now what I find profound about Brandon's work, um, and the reason I wanted the two of you together, is that I think the way that judges write their opinions and the way that they speak at confirmation hearings translates to the way they behave in chambers. And it translates to the way that they treat their employees, be they clerks or otherwise. And this is a wholly systemic problem, right? If, if we are appointing judges who don't believe in women's equality, 
even the judges who are business judges, right? Because Kaczynski is this contracts judge and like writes all these great business opinions. But if you look at anything he's ever written about women, you should see the thread. Like you should understand that this is a man who probably is harassing people based on the subtle opinions he has about women, right? Like we can, and we, we should stop, we should acknowledge that we have ignored women. We've ignored people of color. We'd ignored LGBTQ people in the confirmation process. And it has created a hostile work environment. If you can get, if you're a Kavanaugh and you can get away with it, right? If you're Thomas and you can get away with harassing other federal employees while you are a federal employee, what are those chambers like? I think to come up really quickly, I think that's right. I think it's, I think it's partially right. I think I don't want progressives to get a pass. Like they can't get a pass, right? Reinhardt, big ninth circuit progressive. The I mean, not curse. I'm sorry. Like the things that this person did and put woman clerks through nightmare that they have to live with every day. So progressive judges don't get a pass here. And that's why movement judges, when you are part of these movements, when you're in proximity with these communities that are oppressed, right, that are disfavored in our legal system, when you're there, you feel it. And theoretically feeling that, being there, would translate into your understanding of what the Constitution is, would translate in how you treat people that you hire, would translate in just your hiring practice. Who are you hiring, right? Like, Black people literally are not getting looks by many of these judges. Eminently qualified, can get the work done just as well as their white peers, but they're not even giving the chance to do that, right? So, like, progressives need to own this, too. Right. And a lot of the changes that we're talking about with the new act, Judicial Accountability Act, there's resistance, you know, some sort of, you know, resistant movement happening among judges. Like, wait a minute. Um, like, so, like, let's be clear, like, it's not this happening with like, like conservative outlets. There's progressive, like, no, we can police ourselves. We're fine. Everything's cool. Like, these are just one-offs, right? It's the same thing with bad apples. You know about the bad apple theory. It's a, literally a theory in any type of kind of oppressive regime. Bad apple, bad apple, bad apple. Policing, bad apple. Judging, bad apple. No, 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 no. These things are structured where these people could literally get away with so much. And not only that, Carlos, as I mentioned, they get a promotion. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the thing with Reinhardt, though, is that progressives defended him because they believed in his ideology. He got a free pass because of that. People defended him till the bitter end. And when we talk about not giving progressives a free pass, it's that type of thing. We can always find more chief executives to appoint judges we agree with. But agreeing with them ideologically is absolutely no reason to defend these harassers and keep them on the bench. And I think I have definitely less of an ideological stake in this fight, I think, than Brandon does. And when I think about remaking the judiciary, I really think about treating judges first and foremost as employers. The question should be, are you above reproach in your day-to-day dealings with your clerks? Because how you treat them, especially behind closed doors, when nobody's watching, speaks to who you really are. So, it's, I mean, it's, this is a bipartisan issue. Both Dems and Republican appointees are continuing to harass their clerks and their ideological you know, supporters will defend them till the bitter end. And we just need to stop doing that. Democrats, Republicans, if somebody is harassing their clerks, they shouldn't be a judge anymore. And we shouldn't shy away from using the impeachment power. I know Congress does shy away from it. We should absolutely expand the use of it. Well, and data I think- points, Carlos. We need data points. Who are these people hiring? 
right? Like, who are they hiring? Like, I want that data to come out. So I'm telling you, I think we all know what it's going to reflect, right? It's a systemic structural problem of racism, of sexism. It's there, right? And once the empirics come out, the data comes out, we have to ask ourselves, uh-oh, like, this is literally the elite of the profession. Not only that, they have the golden ticket to make a student elite, right? Like, me being hired by a judge gave me credentials that my peers don't have that are going to open doors for me, rightly or wrongly. I think wrongly, right? But that is how our profession actually exists. And maybe there's going to be an acknowledgement. There won't, right? If, if we deal with truth and reconciliation, it's, wait a minute. Look at how this system continues to perpetuate itself. Right. There's a reason why our judges look a certain way is because we, we expect certain credentials that they're not giving other people. OK, black people, brown people, poor people, they're not giving them them. So how in the hell can a president say you're qualified because they're looking for these check the box credentials? If you clerk, how can we get these people on the bench? That should be our work. And I completely agree. We need complete transparency and all judges uh, like it is a bipartisan Progressive judges, just like conservative judges, do bad things. But also, like, data collection is really a statement about what we care about, what we value. And the fact that the judiciary won't collect and report this data says, one, they don't care that judges are harassing their clerks. And two, they probably have something to hide because in the rare instances when, like, the D.C. Circuit survey gets leaked and Ann Marimau reports on it in the Post, what we see is that there are some judges who are not hiring any women not hiring any minorities. And these are the same people. It starts with not complying with the federal hiring plan, not hiring women and minorities, refusing to attend, quote unquote, mandatory training. It's not really mandatory because it's not enforced. Like these are the same misbehaviors down the line. And we need data. And then we need, you know, real punishment for judges who misbehave. Aliza, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you're doing to address this data issue. And I always say, you know, we don't count what we don't care about. And I bring that up when I talk about, you know, law schools also don't count um, their numbers. Um, Lots of lots of institutions in the legal profession do not count like the eight. When's the last time the ABA did a survey? that was accurate of like the numbers of minority in the profession, right? So I would love to hear what you are doing about your organizations, what you are doing to fix this data problem. Yeah, so one of the legal accountability projects, big fall initiatives is a judiciary workplace culture assessment of both the federal and state judiciaries. The judiciary has been notoriously unwilling to collect and report this data. So we're trying to pick up the slack. So what we're doing is we've created a survey that's going to elucidate data on the types of clerks facing mistreatment, the true availability and accessibility of resources in their courthouses, and their concerns about reporting, both to the judiciary and to their law schools. We're going to be sending out this survey in conjunction with law school support to the past 10 years worth of law clerk alumni at 10 to 20 institutions in the fall of 2022. And we hope to collect, report, and analyze this data and send it off to the ABA, federal judiciary, lawmakers. And I think that really quantifying the scope of the problem is the first step toward crafting effective solutions. We really just need to know where the problem areas are, because as I'm talking to law clerks and I'm talking to judges, I mean, I talked to a judge the other day who said, I've been on the bench 10 years. I've never been required to attend EDR training. There is something wrong when the judiciary is saying EDR training is mandatory and it's great and EDR works and judges aren't required to attend it. That's not the judge's fault. 
that is the judiciary leadership's fault for not enforcing the rules. And so I think there's, I mean, what I see throughout my work is there's always a mismatch between what the judiciary leadership claims is happening, what law school leadership claims is happening, and what on the ground is happening to law students and law clerks every day in courthouses across the country. Now, this is amazing work, and I'm, I'm very excited that you're doing it, and I'm excited that, you know, I always say the younger generation will save us, and um, I'm always motivated by what you are doing and what, what my students are doing uh, to make real change in the world, because I think that those of us who are a little older have gotten too complacent, um, and we spent too much time listening to people telling us harassment is what happens at work, or that's what it means to be a clerk, or that's what it means to be at a law firm if you don't like it. You know, the mad men, that's what the money is for. Comment is what I got a lot of when I was, you know, at your level. And so I think it's important that y'all aren't taking it anymore and that y'all are doing something to fix it. Because I think that's the only way this stuff is going to change is if the younger generation comes along and doesn't accept the status quo for sure. And I think that law students are really going to push this movement forward. I mean, I'm talking to law student groups every day. And I'm just really heartened by what I hear. They get it. They understand this is an unaddressed issue. They're excited to have me on their campuses in the fall talking about this issue. They're excited about the resources we're going to be providing. They're going to go with us to some recalcitrant administrations to say, why aren't we utilizing these resources? So I'm just excited by what I see on the ground. And I just hope every law student gets engaged because we owe it to the next generation of like law clerks and young attorneys to ensure that their workplaces are safe. Exactly. And as Brandon said, you know, the people who are the clerks, and we saw this with the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation. Um, I think about how many great people, and not to say that she isn't amazing because she is, uh, she's almost like the perfect candidate for the bench. But the fact that for a black woman to get on the bench, it takes a perfect candidate who has, the Supreme Court clerkship and has been on the bench and has like has never done anything wrong in life that we can find. Right. That it's that level of perfection that it takes. And the fact that I know why I didn't clerk, I needed money. I could not go take a federal salary after putting myself through school. So I didn't even bother to apply. I was like, this law firm pays six figures. Can so, I, I want to chime in because I think it's a great point, the economic point that I think we really need to emphasize where, you know, when we're thinking about hierarchies and dismantling them, we need to understand there's socioeconomic hierarchy and that you're taking on so much debt when you go to law school that some, particularly black and brown people, and they come, you know, with lower socioeconomic status, they come in, they're like, I got to work, I got to support my family. That was me, right? Like, I didn't clerk right away. I had to go and support my family. And, you know, and I was thankful for that. But I also want to comment on your perfection um, of uh, Katanji Brown Jackson, who is truly extraordinary, but you're right, perfect. And let's be clear, there's plenty of black women with extraordinary credentials that should be on the bench already a long time ago. We could go through all of the ones that should, including Pauli Murray, who I argue is like the, you know, the example movement lawyer in my piece. But even when you're perfect, which Let's, let's assume for a moment Katanji Brown Jackson, her jurisprudence and everything she's done, okay, for a moment, she did it right, at least the right way, even if you disagree with her outcome, okay? You had a sitting senator, Ben Sass, accuse her of lying under oath, right? Because she could not remember why a particular defendant was stepped back, stepped back to process some judicial court. You violate your, super, your terms of your supervised release. 
sometimes the court steps you back, meaning you go back to jail for a few days or something along those lines. You violated those terms. She couldn't recall why she stepped back this person. And Ben Sass literally accused her of lying under oath. So you know, think about this for a minute, right? Think about this. This is a powerful judge being accused of lying under oath. What message does that send to the clerk who's accusing a powerful judge, conservative judge, for an example, of sexually assaulting them? Okay, like, look at what they do. Like, think about this. Like, this is extraordinary. So we need the data. We need the systems in place to support, you know, people that actually have been victimized by these judges. And we need systems in place to get rid of these people. But at the same time, we have to question ourselves, right, do we have the structures in place now, anti-democratic structures, what I mentioned up front, that actually kind of, you know, dismantle this anti-democratic regime where you don't have sitting senators accusing sitting federal judges of lying under oath they can recall something. This, what message does that send to the woman clerk who was just sexually assaulted or harassed by a conservative judge that we all know being groomed for the next court up? That's something we have to grapple with. Absolutely. Now, I would love to talk about the elephant in the room, which is Clarence and Jenny Thomas. And I would love for both of you to weigh in on if you think the Judicial Accountability Act would stop that kind of behavior or if you have other ideas of what might. Now, just to recap for folks who may not be informed, and Brandon has alluded to it multiple times, um, Jenny Thomas is very active in Republican Party politics. Um, she sent messages encouraging people to essentially certify that Trump had won the election. Um, people say, and it seems to be credible, that she played a part in the insurrection. And Clarence Thomas did not recuse himself from any of these opinions. And the only way we seems know... Seems to be incredible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Seems to be credible. Well, was, of course it's credible. It's literally her text messages. Saying I was you trying, gotta I was, save democracy, Meadows. <laughs> like we have her actual text messages to Arizona representatives saying, "What are you doing? You gotta change the tide." Like, of course, it's credible. You don't have more credible evidence in a courtroom than your actual text messages. This is true. So we have proof that Jenny tried to um, help dismantle democracy, and. Clarence did not recuse himself at all, is still sitting and hearing all kinds of opinions, has has done nothing except go to work every day and be a Supreme Court justice. Um, so my question for both of you, would the Judicial Accountability Act stop this? Would the other legislation stop this? Or what can we do if, if these things aren't going to work? What can we do? Do you have thoughts, Aliza? I'll let you start. Yeah, so, I mean, the Judiciary Accountability Act would not necessarily address this. Um, it's a you know, judicial misconduct bill and a workplace protections bill. Uh, I mean, the 21st Century Courts Act that Brandon has mentioned would. It would create a code of conduct or mandate that the Supreme Court create a code of conduct. It's unclear what the code of conduct would require. Uh, lower court judges do have refusal obligate refusal, recusal obligations that do not <laughs> apply to Supreme Court justices. Personally, I mean, I think... I think this um, issue is a little, it's not overblown, but it's getting too much attention to the exclusion of things like the Judiciary Accountability Act. I mean, we've known that Clarence Thomas was a harasser for several decades, and this is not a surprise that his wife is 
you know, also committing misconduct and that he is not recusing himself in the face of this. Um, I really think that it's not a surprise and we should be focusing on some other issues as well. But yeah, I, you know, I think we need to be able to do all of the above walking through gum. I, you know, I think this is a, personally a huge issue um, that neither act, I think, are really, truly going to get at the heart of that. The, the recusal, even at the 21st Century Act, it's really up to you to determine whether or not you should recuse in a case. Um, so I don't know if that's going to help what guardrails we could put in place. Congress could do something about this. Congress can enact certain laws in place that says, hey, look, you absolutely have to recuse whenever your partner has any relationship with any party in the case, right? Like, or this could be grounds for right impeachment, okay? Like, literally talk about what the consequences are. Like, Congress has a role here, and yet Congress is doing nothing, right? The bills that we talked about, which are a start, are they going to get passed? Are they going to get through the Senate? Right. Are they going to get through a filibuster if one person filibuster? Is that going to happen? Right. Like You also need leadership from the Supreme Court. Like, look, this is a, the Supreme Court, in my humble opinion, and we talked about it, I never thought it was legitimate. Okay? I've never. And I've talked about why. But assume for a moment you believe in legitimacy. Right. Like, OK, then Chief Justice, you know, Justice Roberts, do something, say something. You could implement some sort of code yourselves. Right. Courts have governing rules themselves. Like, or you could come out and say, he should not be on any of these cases. You can make a public statement. Other chiefs have done that in the past. You do that, right? But Congress has a huge role here. Congress needs to step up and actually do something. But I also think part of the bigger picture that we need to start thinking about is like, we know we have these people. We know there's no consequences. So like expansion, and not only Supreme Court expansion, lower court expansion needs to be on the table, right? And conservatives have been arguing for this for forever. Like, they are literally given us the blueprint. Why are we not using that to say, yeah, lower court expansion? And not only that, like we do have this diversity kind of imbalance. Every person for you know these X amount of seats we create really should be a woman of color. Like, and I've done the math. I have a representative uh, representative theory of expansion that I'm like literally going to get published in the UCLA, where I argue we should expand and it all should be women of color to those new seats. I think this will change potentially just itself culture in and on top of all the acts that we need to put in place from Congress. I mean, I think expansion by itself won't fix the problem, though. We need to ensure that we have, one, workplace protections and two, judicial misconduct policies that are addressing the problem, because as we said before, progressives are harassing their clerks, too. Yeah. So we can't mm -hmm. we can't sleep on the judicial accountability here. Right. And I think, you know, it's true across the board, too, when we look at politicians who sexually harass and have sexual misconduct. Um, <laughs> We can figure out what gender is usually harassing, but we can't figure out which political party. I say usually, not always, but you'd usually. Be, yeah, you'd be surprised at how many <laughs> yes. people reach out to talk about the female bosses who harass them. In the Absolutely, because yeah. they can get away with it even more. Oh, definitely. Now, I had another lightning round question planned, and we've only got one minute left. So quick lightning round question for each of you. Who do you think leaked the Dobbs opinion? I'll go first, like... To be honest with you, like, I just don't care, right? Like, this is where I'm at. Like, I don't really care who did, right? Like, if, you know, conservative justice, progressive justice, or clerks, like, I just don't. Um, what I care about is what's in the opinion, and what's in the opinion should scare all of us. All right, Aliza? 
Well, I agree with Brandon on the first part. I also don't really care, but I think it highlights a bigger issue, which is the enormous power disparity between Supreme Court justices and clerks, and that nobody in the face of that, as a SCOTUS justice is demanding your cell phone records, is going to turn them down. But it shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't be creating such dangerous workplaces for our law clerks. And that's really why I asked, because, you know, we go from, oh, it was Sotomayor to we now need the cell phone records of every single clerk, which massive invasion of privacy. Um, and all of my friends who are not lawyers said, can my job do that to me? And I was like, no, they can't. Um, and then they're like, wait, well, why? Like the judges can just demand the cell phone records of the law clerks. And it's like, yes, they can. They absolutely can. And, and that's, you know, the, that's clerks, the clerks should say no, right? Like, no. But there's a power dynamic that we've been talking about that it's, that could be career ending, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's what's at stake here. So we need to pass these acts. We need to think about what type of judge we're putting on the bench. We need to do it all. Right. All right. Well, I would like to thank both of you for being on the show. This has been an enlightening conversation. And hopefully folks who aren't lawyers are getting a, a look into, you know, why this is so maddening and so crazy. Um, Thank you all for tuning in to Getting Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcast anywhere podcasts are played, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also listen on the Voice America website and on our YouTube channel. Feel free to email me through the show page or reach out on social media. I am at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening and thank you again to my guests. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion.